Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, episode 180, Massacres on Land and Sea. Welcome first to our newest patrons. We've got Ivan, Michael Kreutzer, Moritz, I hope I get this right, Baumgartel, uh, Isabella, Jonathan Solis, and Alexandra Velikova. Thank you all so much for choosing to support the podcast. It really makes a big difference and yeah, lets me invest as much as I want with reckless abandon in all the you know materials and uh, tools and everything I use to make this. So thanks. And Quick note for listeners who are in and around Chicago. The Field Museum is currently having an exhibition on the Thracians, which looks pretty interesting. Uh, I'm sadly here in Bulgaria, nowhere near, so I can't check it out, but I recommend you check it out if you can. And if you do, let me know how it was, because I'm curious. And with that, let's get into it. It's May the 26th, 1905, and the newly christened South Pacific Squadron of the Russian Empire has been at sea for more than seven months, during which time the lumbering battleships have pressed through 29,000 kilometers of rough seas, nearly started a war with the UK, shot at each other a few times, picked up a zoo's worth of animals at stopovers in Africa. Seriously though, if you can look up like YouTube videos about the journey of the South uh, Second Pacific Squadron, it's an insane story. After all that, the squadron has finally arrived in the Tsushima Straits between Korea and Japan. The squadron was commanded by Vice Admiral Rojasvensky, known not so affectionately as Mad Dog, a man who fought the Ottoman Navy back in the 1877-1878 Russo-Turkish War and actually had subsequently helped found the Bulgarian Navy. He had led this newly formed squadron of mostly obsolete battleships and quite untested sailors on the longest coal-powered battleship voyage in history, taking most from the Baltic Sea and around... So yeah, a few few could go through the Panama Canal, but most could not, so most of them had to go all the way around the southern tip of Africa and across the Indian Ocean to get here. Their mission was to avoid contact with the Japanese fleet and to reach the Russian port of Vladivostok but facing them was a highly trained Japanese Navy manning modern ships. The Japanese alliance with Great Britain meant that a wealth of British naval knowledge had already been imparted on the Japanese sailors, meaning that while Japan was a relatively new kind of modern naval power, it was able to learn from probably the oldest and greatest naval power in the world at this time. Now, When the two fleets did finally meet on that May day, the Russian flotilla was almost completely destroyed, losing eight battleships alongside a slew of smaller vessels. The Japanese, by comparison, lost just three torpedo boats. After a string of other losses at land and at sea, it was now clear that Russia's last hand had been played and St. Petersburg had no other choice but to accept defeat and sue for peace. In the subsequent Treaty of Portsmouth, U.S. President Theodore Roosevelt brokered that piece, for which he won the Nobel Prize. This also showed the growing importance of the United States as a new great power on the world stage. But in any case, the treaty placed Korea under Japanese influence and forced Russia to leave Manchuria. 
There were other provisions, but what's important here is that Russia had to abandon its aim to establish itself as a real power in the Far East and of controlling a warm water port there. Russia still had Vladivostok, but winter ice severely limited how useful that port could be. Now, Japan had nearly free reign to expand its influence in China and Korea, while Russia had to shift its attention elsewhere. Now, the Russo-Japanese War of 1904-1905 was the first major war of the 20th century, and it showed how the assumptions of 19th century European dominance were basically no longer things that could be relied upon. Misha Glenny describes what happened writing, quote, These humiliating defeats, the first of a Western power by an Oriental state, astonished public opinion the world over and marked the end of Russia's Far Eastern adventures and a return to its more traditional concerns in the Balkans. The rivalry between Russia and Austria-Hungary, which had begun to covet the Albanian-inhabited territories in Kosovo and Macedonia, was reignited. After 1905, these two great powers, whilst playing lip service to the language of cooperation in the southern Balkans, once again competed for influence in the region at each other's expense. End quote. And that is why the Russo-Japanese War is very important to Bulgaria, oddly enough. Now, Glennie also notes in a footnote that the shock of Russia's defeat was felt particularly strongly in the Ottoman Empire, leading Sultan Abdul Hamid to become deeply interested in Japan and view it as a kind of model for the Ottoman state to potentially kind of rise out of its, you know, gloomy period, let's say. Now, around this time, Germany also finally began to develop its own interest in the Balkans as well. Now, you'll recall that, say, during the Treaty of Berlin era, Germany didn't really care very much about the Balkans. But that was starting to change. Now, this wasn't really due to anything on the Balkan Peninsula itself, but mostly stemmed from an Anglo-German rivalry, where Berlin wanted to build a strong relationship with the Ottoman Empire in order to exert its influence in Persia and the Middle East. This led to Germany supporting Austria-Hungary's ambitions to dominate the Balkans because this would potentially allow the two states to create a corridor of control stretching from the North Sea all the way to the Persian Gulf. And obviously Bulgaria would be an important link in that chain. All of this deeply worried Britain and Russia, pushing these two powers, which had spent most of the 19th century competing for influence in Central Asia or just outright fighting each other in the Crimean War, towards cooperation to curtail the growing power of Germany and Austria-Hungary. Remember, Britain had previously supported the Ottomans as a bastion against growing Russian power, but public opinion on Ottoman oppression of Christian subjects in the Balkans, like Bulgarians obviously, had gradually pushed London to reconsider this policy. Now, Britain finally completed the switch and joined Russia in wishing for the dissolution of the Ottoman state. It only took Germany replacing Russia as Britain's greatest potential rival, and of course, ironically, the devastating loss by Japan helped show that Russia wasn't as great a threat as the British may have believed before, and all these kind of geopolitical norms were suddenly rearranged. All that is to say, the reason I covered the seemingly far-off war between Russia and Japan at all is that, as should be clear by now, it was actually exceptionally important and had enormous consequences for Bulgaria and the Balkans. For years, all the great powers had firmly supported the status quo in the Balkans, putting the Bulgarian government in an awkward position of not really being able to openly advocate for any major changes in Macedonia without angering those great powers, whose support Bulgaria needed to get anything done. 
But at the same time, the Bulgarian population and the MRO were all, let's say, impatient and less attuned to the kind of carefully diplomatic games that Sofia was trying to play. So, as we've seen for many episodes at this point, the Bulgarian government has just been stuck between a rock and a hard place, between a geopolitical reality that prevents it from being able to do anything in Macedonia, really, and a population that wants action. But now, the Balkans is returning to its status as a chessboard for the great powers. But the question is, where will Bulgaria stand in all this? On the one hand, Britain might now become an ally because they too desire to implement greater reforms in Macedonia and eventually weaken the Ottoman Empire. However, the extent to which Britain could functionally support Bulgaria in a Balkan land war is, well, let's say limited by just geographic reality. Austria-Hungary wants to expand its power and influence in the region, but mostly at the expense of Serbia. And as we know, they're a little, you know, on the rocks, that relationship. So Austria-Hungary might be a good Bulgarian ally, as their interests seem to be aligned. You know, Bulgaria can expand in Macedonia at the expense of Serbia, while Austria-Hungary can expand from the north at the expense of Serbia. All that is to say, the Russo-Japanese War shook up the international system and helped create the alliance systems that will eventually basically lead to the First World War in just seven short years. So kind of keep an eye out, keep an ear out for that, because while those alliances aren't kind of set in stone for the most part yet, the Russo-Japanese War, all these events are starting to push the major players into their respective corners and sort of setting the chessboard for the Balkan Wars and the First World War. But another key event that this war helps trigger is the Russian Revolution of 1905. Now, the underlying cause of this revolution was, you could say, a combination of an educated class, which wanted more democratic representation, which is a, a kind of classic phenomenon in world history, that once you get a wealthy middle class, they tend to want more democracy. Because when you have a wealthy sort of aristocratic elite, usually they're a part of the power structure anyway, so they've got money, they've got power, they're content. You know, peasants or, or you know, the everyday people, they don't have a lot of money. They don't have a lot of power. You know, th there isn't a way for them to really want power. They don't have the resources to desire it. But when you get that middle class that has money but doesn't have political power, they get agitated because they feel very vulnerable, right? They, they have resources, but they don't have any say in governmental policy that affects them very greatly. And so just as a general kind of phenomenon in world history, you know, educated wealthy middle classes tend to push for democracy. And that is what's starting to happen in Russia. Then the peasants are frustrated that they're struggling to survive, which, you know, fair. Uh, so yeah, things have been really difficult on the peasants, even though serfdom ended some decades previously. And basically peasants, they, they at this point, you know, with the end of serfdom, they were given very small plots and they found themselves unable to really even feed themselves, let alone sell some excess stuff to make a profit or to, you know, buy other things. So, you know, it's a classic issue we see a lot in the Balkans as well, where you have all these like tiny farmers with very, very small plots of land that struggle to support themselves. And often there's also issues of descendants. You know, the land constantly gets split up amongst their descendants. And so the plots get smaller and smaller and smaller. And you have people who are just you know, frustrated and unable to support themselves. In Russia, there was also a lot of non-Russian minorities who were pretty frustrated at being oppressed and ruled by the Russian Empire, particularly Russia's Jewish population. 
Then the last little, you know, spice to this blend is a growing class of industrial workers who are being agitated by radical socialists who want to organize them. So you can see why the, the recipe for revolution is a, a spicy one in Russia at this moment. You've got a lot of disaffected people. And then you have that trigger of the country's humiliating loss to Japan, and you get revolution. Now, to be fair, the revolution was already underway by the time Russia's defeat became clear, with demonstrating workers being shot at by the Tsar's troops in the early days of 1905, killing hundreds. And massive strikes by this point begin to spread throughout the empire. And by the time the war with Japan concluded later in the year, this expanded to naval mutinies, including the famous battleship Potemkin incident. Soon, Finns, Poles, Latvians, Lithuanians, Estonians were all agitating for change, while Russia's substantial Muslim population founded the Union of Muslims in Russia to do the same. Tsar Nicholas's uncle was assassinated, and pogroms killed thousands of Jews, and just the whole country was generally descending into chaos. In response, Tsar Nicholas agreed to create a parliament, grant freedom of speech and religion, and enact some new policies designed to help the peasantry. But when that parliament, the State Duma, was created, it was merely designed to advise the Tsar, whose power remained absolute. As a result, the revolution only intensified as violence and uprising spread yet further. Finally, in October, the Tsar signed the October Manifesto, allowing the formation of political parties, expanding voting and other civil rights, and empowering the Duma to actually pass legislation. The Tsar noted how he felt sick at having betrayed his dynasty when signing the document. You know, absolute monarchies are going to absolute monarch. But while many were satisfied with this victory and now turned their attention to elections, conservative elements took this as a chance to fight back against the left, while radical socialists denounced it and called for the destruction of the empire. However, while defeat and the war did fuel all these flames, it also finally allowed the Tsar to redeploy a substantial amount of soldiers to restore order internally, and so most uprisings were put down by the end of 1905. Within a few months, Russia would indeed have a constitution, and the empire enacted some pretty real reforms. But one thing was clear. Huge swaths of the empire's population remained deeply unhappy with the state of things. From right-wing conservatives who wanted a powerful monarchy to lead the empire to new glory, to left-wingers who wanted to overthrow it all and create a workers' state. Then, of course, there were the liberal reformers who were happy with democratic reforms but wanted more. In other words, the uprisings had been suppressed, but the underlying cause of the revolution remained very real. It may seem at first glance that all this is not very related to Bulgaria, but all these events were collectively reshaping the world in ways that will eventually have a very profound effect on Bulgaria's own story. So, okay, after that, you know, long detour, it's time to get back to where we left off last time. We covered a series of MRO congresses in which the organization tried to find a new way forward after the Ilinden Uprising's failure. But we finished off with the bloody Zagoritsa massacre in which a Greek detachment in Macedonia killed dozens of Bulgarians in a village of the same name. This triggered anti-Greek riots in Bulgaria. But before we cover those, I wanted to take a moment to give some background to the Greek community in Bulgaria to better understand the kind of wider context and meaning of these riots. Now, 
This mostly comes from reading Theodora Dragostinova's book Between Two Motherlands, Nationality and Emigration Among the Greeks of Bulgaria, 1900-1949. In this book, she examines how Greek identity within Bulgaria was quite complex. Though Greeks only comprised about 2% of the population, so you know a tiny minority, their relationship with the country of Greece wasn't really very consistent. Depending on the combination of speaking Greek, being ethnically Greek, or being a member of the patriarchate church, or just simply identifying as Greek, the, te- the extent to which people kind of felt attachment to Greece as either the country or just as a vague idea varied a tremendous amount. Dragostinova writes how, quote, even in Plovdiv slash Filipopolis and the Black Sea communities, which were the most developed colonies, many Greek speakers, being locals, viewed their Greekness as a matter of cultural heritage and were indifferent to the Greek national struggles, end quote. She goes on to explain how, quote, their group mentality was a mixture of loyalty to a loosely defined Greek idea, attachment to local community interests, and cosmopolitan feelings of belonging to a European bourgeois culture, end quote. She ultimately summarizes the relationship of these communities to Greek proper, writing, quote, In Bulgaria, the interests of the Greeks did not neatly correspond to the national cause promoted by the Kingdom of Greece. In the early 20th century, the Greek governments focused on territorial expansion in Ottoman Crete and Macedonia, and did not consider the Bulgarian Greek population their priority. For their part, the Greeks of Bulgaria were concerned with the smooth functioning of their communities within the principality, trying to secure the availability of Greek language education, patriarchist priests, and philanthropic services for the population. While the vision of Great Greece remained attractive to many, the Greek residents of Bulgaria remained preoccupied with local concerns and didn't always follow official Greek policies. End quote. So, importantly, you know, the Greeks living in places like Anchialos or, or Nesebor or Bomorie, these kinds of places, or in Plovdiv, they're not necessarily, you know, connected very much with the kingdom of Greece, you know, based in Athens. They, for the most part, are kind of doing their own thing because these are ancient communities, right? These are people who who their ancestors have lived in these places for many, many, many centuries. And, you know, this new Greek state is kind of a weird thing. And, you know, it's kind of a reminder that uh, historically Greece, you know, was very divided. There wasn't that strong of a kind of singular Greek identity that was mostly a, you know, kind of 19th century invention, and that invention had yet to have a profound impact on Greeks living in Bulgaria. Now within Macedonia, as we know, things were pretty complicated as well. There were communities of Slavic speakers who continued to identify with the Greek Patriarchate Church, for example. This ties back to the long-standing tendency of some Bulgarians or Slavic speakers to identify with Greece. Remember all the way back, Paisi Hilandarsky denouncing this in the 18th century, saying that, you know, you should be proud of being Bulgarians and don't pretend to be Greeks and think that everything Greek is better? Well, by the 19th century, this phenomenon was called Grecomania, and people who fell into this category were often branded as national traitors. Now, by this point, that branding had gradually expanded to include virtually anyone who speaks Greek or is a member of the Patriarchate branding of being, you know, national traitors. And Greece increasingly viewed this, was kind of increasingly viewed as an enemy of the Bulgarian nation. Well, and you can see, the increasing kind of fights over Macedonia kind of makes sense why more and more people would have that opinion. Another common kind of framing was that 
Some were alleged to have, basically people who identify with Greece in Macedonia for one reason or another, were often labeled as Bulgarians who had merely forgotten their true Bulgarian identity, which those of you familiar with later 20th century Bulgarian history, that will sound familiar. Now, getting into the environment after the Zagoritsa massacre, as we know, the Alinden uprising led to tens of thousands of refugees from Macedonia settling into Bulgaria. Many of these refugees felt Greeks were partially responsible for the situation in Macedonia and that Greeks in Bulgaria shared that responsibility, despite the fact that they didn't really have any genuine connection to what happened in Macedonia, but you know, still, they were ostensibly part of the same national group. And so a lot of these refugees felt entitled to attack Greeks in Bulgaria the same way they had been attacked by Greek bands in Macedonia. It's a bit like the situation we saw with the Circassian refugees in the previous century, people fleeing genocide at the hands of Orthodox Christian Russians, often taking their frustration out on Orthodox Bulgarians, where they settled as refugees, even though the only connection those two people shared was having basically the same religion. So this is the context. You had huge numbers of Macedonian refugees furious at the Greeks in general. You had the Zagorisa massacre and the fact that in early 1905, Bulgarian officials discovered weapons and propaganda materials in Greek homes and diplomatic offices in Bulgaria, which were intended for the Greeks of Macedonia. In other words, the Bulgarian government found evidence that the Greek state was trying to kind of spread more of this kind of pro-Greek Macedonian propaganda within Bulgaria, so that also kind of fueled the anti-Greek feelings. So, early 1906 saw a series of anti-Greek meetings held throughout Bulgaria, but things really got heated up that summer when the Patriarchist Church appointed a new Greek bishop to Varna. The problem was, the man appointed had a long history of anti-Bulgarian activities in Macedonia. As a result, crowds of protesters in Varna prevented the bishop from disembarking at the port three consecutive times, and even took control of several patriarchist churches and hospitals throughout the city, replacing Greek patriarchate officials with Bulgarian ones. Things quickly started to heat up. Protesters decorated donkeys in the symbols of the Greek church, demanding actions be taken against the Greeks in Bulgaria, and even declared that Bulgarian would be the only language used in public. Soon, these incidents expanded along the coast as Greek churches and schools in Kavarna and Balchik were similarly taken over, while Burgas saw a pogrom against Greek property. Soon, an anti-Greek rally in Plovdiv was held, attracting some 10,000 participants, which then turned into yet another pogrom as businesses and institutions owned by Greeks were attacked throughout the city. Police attempted to stop the violence and subsequent fights led to the deaths of one Bulgarian and one Greek. Word spread as Bulgarian priests spoke out against Greeks from their pulpits and a rally in Sofia soon attracted 20,000 participants. The anti-Greek violence was now becoming a national problem, spreading further and further throughout Bulgaria. Greek churches were being renamed, books burned, and Greek inscriptions were placed. People proposed renaming cities and towns with Greek names with the names of famous Bulgarian rulers. The government did ultimately tell the Patriarchate that the bishop it wanted for Varna was basically rejected and wouldn't be allowed, but events were now moving on their own, driven in part by a radical core group of instigators calling themselves Bulgarian Patriot. But the government was still caught off guard by the scale and the intensity of the anti-Greek attacks. 
Finally, in late July, members of Bulgarian Patriot marched on the almost entirely Greek town of Anchialos, again now called Pomorie, and yes, this is the same place that was the site of several of the biggest battles of the medieval wars between Bulgaria and Byzantium. So, those of you who've been listening from the beginning, this will be a familiar location. Local Greeks gathered in a monastery and armed themselves for protection. Thus, when the Bulgarians arrived, fighting broke out and it soon spread. Within a short period of time, the entire town of Anchialos was in flames. The government sent soldiers to stop the violence and to put out the fires, but 14 people were already dead and the city was in ruins. Watching the columns of smoke rise from nearby Nesebr, the Greeks there decided to hand over control of their churches to the Bulgarian exarchate. The violence seen at Anchialos marked a turning point. When actions were mostly confined to rallies and sporadic violence, the population still viewed them as being just, you know, just reactions to what the Greeks had already done. But this was something different, and newspapers and politicians alike began to condemn the violence. One man remarked that, quote, We did not meet one Bulgarian in the streets who approved of this violence. We are deafened by the coarse voices of patriots, who use the pure, sacred, popular indignation against Greek violence in Macedonia to throw in the mud and rape the real, sacred demonstrations of the people, end quote. It was now clear to most that things had gone much too far, but these actions were profoundly unjust in that the violence was doing incredible, incredible harm to Bulgaria's image abroad. The Petrov government was now determined to put an end to the violence. The Greek press had something of a field day, writing how, quote, these barbarous acts would never occur under the Acropolis and the Olympic Temple, end quote. Which, frankly, elicited an eye roll from our, your humble host, because, well, yeah, come on. The Greek press went on to write how Europe had to stop the, quote, frenzy, bestiality, and savagery of the Bulgarian government and the Bulgarian people's soul, end quote. So again, it's the rolling my eyes here because the, the kind of tendency of modern Greeks to always connect them with ancient Greeks and pretend that they're much more civilized and fundamentally different from other people of the Balkans, which like, they're not. But still, you know, they're right to be mad against this violence. They're right to push back against it. But framing it, uh, you know, basically framing that Bulgarians are inherently savage people is not right. But in other words, frankly, while the actions by Bulgarians against Greeks at this time were absolutely reprehensible, they were also in response to horrific massacres being carried out on the orders of the Greek government. So, for the Greek press to respond by claiming that they are the descendants of ancient Greeks who would never do such a thing when they literally like just did, and claiming that the Bulgarian soul is beastly and savagery, really, to me, takes away from their moral high ground that they would otherwise have, but yeah. At least some Greek journalists decided to place a portion of the blame at the feet of their own government, writing, quote, The Bulgarians are barbarians, but they have an army. Their politicians are criminals, but they have politics. They are savage in their patriotism, but they have patriotism. What about us? We do not even have the latter, end quote. Basically pointing out that the Greek government was somewhat incompetent and not very uniting at this time. And many Greeks were rightly angry about the violence in Bulgaria, but just as angry about their own government's incompetence. Now, foreign diplomats also strongly criticized the Petrov government for not doing more and urged the return of Greek private property as well as church property. It was clear by now both to the governments in Sofia and Athens that they had to act. But individuals took their own actions, as around a quarter, roughly 20,000, of all Greeks in Bulgaria fled back to Greece at this time. 
okay, maybe actually back to Greece is not right because, you know, they're, they've been living there for centuries, but fled to Greece. Now, Dracostinova notes how previously the Greek government had wanted ethnic Greeks in the region to stay where they were in order to justify political intervention and expansion. But now, Athens was encouraging Greeks to move back to the Greek state proper. Many of these refugees would soon find that life in Greece was very different from what they had imagined, as the kingdom was experiencing deep crisis at this moment. The Petrov government wanted to get more Greeks to stay, but their flight was, well, basically because their leaving was bad for Bulgaria's image and the Bulgarian economy. The Greeks, on the other hand, had organized refugee assistance programs, though these were plagued with problems which made the Greek government look corrupt and incompetent. Dragostinova writes how, quote, The years between 1906 and 1911 saw a notable shift from the new Greek citizens' early enthusiasm to unite with their motherland to their later disappointment and skepticism with life in Greece, end quote. Indeed, many believed the myth that Greece was the land of poets, philosophers, and classical architecture, and were shocked to find a country poorly run and with even less economic security than they had had in Bulgaria. Many actually returned to Bulgaria as a result. Other Greeks had left Bulgaria to avoid the military draft, but upon enlisting in the Greek armed forces, found that they were mocked for their poor grasp of the Greek language and often referred to as Bulgarians or even labeled as spies. Sadly, this is the experience that Anatolian Greeks would eventually discover during population exchanges following the First World War as well. One book on those population exchanges uses the phrase twice a stranger to describe the pretty horrible irony that you're considered an outsider in the country of your birth only to leave to what's your ostensible homeland and be labeled a stranger there as well. In Bulgaria, all these events were used by the government to increase the loyalty of local Greeks to the Bulgarian state with the goal of gradually assimilating them over time. Now that's where I'm going to end today. We're still in 1905 because I chose to go a bit into the future to cover some of these larger events, but next time we'll wrap up the final events of that year and explore more of the violence in Macedonia alongside the political machinations in Sofia. As always, you won't want to miss it. This episode is produced and written by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. As always, check out bghistorypodcast.com for more information about this in every episode, and I'll see you in the next one.